and welcome to the Digital Digest, your weekly telecoms and data center podcast brought to you by the teams at Capacity and Data Economy. I'm your host, Deputy Editor Melanie Mingus, and joining me this week, we have Editor-at-Large Alan Berker-Gray and Senior Reporters Abigail Lapia and Natalie Bannerman. Over the course of this episode, we're going to be talking about the biggest stories from the last week, which include the latest on mobile licenses in Ethiopia and service blackouts in Myanmar. There have been several new funding rounds and projects announced in the data center space, as well as a major departure over at AWS. And over in the world of telecoms, we have a construction update on the Africa One cable, a call for co-investments from Tim, and details on why Bank of America is bankrolling AT&T's 5G spectrum. And Natalie is also going to be bringing us the scoop on what Parler has been up to since it was dropped by app stores and cloud service providers last month. But first, we're going to Abigail, who is going to bring us some of the top stories from the data center industry. Abigail, what's on your radar this week? Yeah, so a lot has been happening this week, um, starting with China Mobile. The, the company has opened a new data center in Frankfurt, Germany. Um, the company actually said that the addition of the data center um, was an important addition to CMI's growing global network and the company also plans for it to serve as both an international network exchange hub and an internet data center um, which is you know brilliant having that too as you know a service that's interchangeable the company um, is also locating its second data center in Europe and revealed that Frank the Frankfurt facility connects with CMI's Singapore and UK data centers its global network center in Hong Kong and its global mobile communications cloud network infrastructure um, the CMI Frankfurt data center is designed with two individual cable lead-ins with dual diversity paths and um, nine layered security control which I'm sure that means it's, you know, really, really secure. Nine layers, there's sound like a lot of layers. Um, the company's global footprint include cable systems, point of presence, data centers, as well as a collaborative agreement with 29 data center service providers that extend its services to more than 210 cities um, across the globe. Now moving on to bridge data centers, um, that company is planning to build a third data center in Malaysia, which will deliver 16 megawatts of IT capacity. The data center um, is located in a suburb in Kuala Lumpur and is scheduled to go live in Q2 of next year. Um, Bridge data centers, two, data, um, two existing data centers in Cyberjaya supports a total of um, 20 megawatts of IT capacity. Um, the company is a subsidiary of Chin Data Group. I'm sure you guys have heard of Chin Data Group, which is listed on the NASDAQ, um, and it was listed in um, September 2020. The company said that more businesses in Malaysia have started to understand the value of data and the benefits that it brings to the local economy, especially in terms of job creations and upskilling for local workforce. Now, moving on to Terraco in Africa, the company has finalized a $166.6 million loan um, financing transaction. So this follows the company's announcement in November last year regarding its construction of a new 38 megawatt hyperscale data center in the east of Johannesburg in South Africa. Terraco said it will use the funds to raise together um, with internally generated cash to finance the plan and has continued um, its investment in the region's digital infrastructure. 
Terraco's newly appointed um, Chief Financial Officer Samuel Irwin said that the shareholders and lenders of Terraco have a long-term vision for Africa's digital transformation and supports its continued investment in data centre infrastructure to serve the sub-Saharan African market. Um, he also said that the funding round and continued investment in data centre construction aligned with Terraco's support of the South African government's investment drive and Terraco's 2020 commitment to invest billions of South African rands to digital infrastructure will be the reason why they'll continue to grow in the region, which is um, something to watch out for. The funding transaction led by ABSA includes several large institutions that have joined the lending group with a view to creating long-term partnerships that will support Terraco's future expansion plans. And lastly, on to you know, one of the biggest um, announcements this week, which is Jeff Bezos stepping down as CEO of Amazon and passing the baton to AWS's Andy Jassy by Q3. Um, the transaction will promote um, the company's current cloud computing head as the billionaire founder Bezos hands over the reins for the first time since the company's inception. Now, uh, Bezos said that he intends to focus his energies on um, on new, you know, attention to new products and other initiatives. And he made sure and clarified that this is no way him retiring. Um, so yeah, he's definitely not going to be pushed behind the scenes at all. Um, in an open email to his 1.3 million employees, Bezos said that Andy is well known inside the company and he will be an outstanding leader and he has full confidence in um, Andy's current work and just how he's delivered AWS um, as a whole. Jassy joined Amazon in 1997 with several other Harvard MBA colleagues. His early roles included um, marketing manager and he actually founded Amazon um, Web Services according to the company's website in 2003 and then in April 2016 he was promoted from senior vice president to the CEO of AWS. Um, so with you know Jesse's move into CEO of Amazon it's been rumoured that the likes of um, Peter DeSantis who is the vice president of global infrastructure at AWS or even Matt Garman, who is the vice president of sales and marketing, are you know one of the few names being tossed around about who will now run AWS. So it's quite interesting to see this shift. I wasn't expecting. Was any of you expecting, you know, this kind of announcement from um, Bezos? I wasn't surprised um, if that makes any sense. I wasn't quite sure if there was anywhere else that Jeff had to go in terms of the accomplishments that he's achieved at Amazon. So um, hardly a surprise. But um, I think it's also interesting that he seems to be, um, Bezos seems to be taking a slightly um, Bill Gates stance in terms of, you know, focusing on a lot of philanthropic work and kind of building out his foundation and his various funds so um yeah i think he's probably just taking a, a bit of a seat back and thinking well you know he's taking it as far as he can go in my opinion yeah and i also feel like uh, because you know picking andy was quite interesting because the cloud side of amazon is doing so well so it just to me i think it's an indication of where the company's you know focusing its growth on especially because he has so much knowledge on cloud computing yeah Absolutely. And I think we mostly forget in, in even in this industry that uh, the biggest earner for Amazon, the Amazon group, is not all those things that arrive in brown paper, brown cardboard boxes. It's the it's AWS. It's it's a data center company with a, a book distribution and food distribution and gadget distribution service attached. 
Um, it's basically a data company. It's just moved so much in, what, 25 years. I realized yesterday I've been using Amazon since 1999, which is just scary. I haven't, there isn't a, doesn't seem to be a system to work out how much I've paid, paid them over that uh, 22 years. But <laughs> <there you> <laughs> um, well, it's interesting because this announcement was made on the back of the financial results, um, which came out yesterday for Q4 2020. Um, and Amazon on that front, more than one headline. So Q4 revenue reached 125.56 billion US dollars, um, which is much higher than the forecast 119.7 billion. Um, and that means that earnings per share hit $14.09, which is just under double the 734 that was actually predicted. Um, so Jesse's tasked with keeping that ship afloat. Um, as Abigail said, you know, who else's name has been thrown into the ring to head AWS, the jewel in Amazon's crown? Um, and then, but what what is next for Jeff? I mean, he also has the Washington Post, this Blue mm. Origin. Could we see him focus on satellites and give Elon a run for his money? Like there's so many moving parts of this, but I think the overall kind of message that Natalie um, touched on as well is that he's not going to retire he's not going no. anywhere it's no. all about what he's going to do next and how that's going to change the world because you know whatever he sees inventor of the kindle could be the next big thing how about yeah. a race with Elon Musk to see which multi-billionaire can land first on Mars <laughs> <laughs> yeah but and, on and come back and come yeah. back of course uh, yeah yeah, but Blue Origin is is an interesting one because um, it was it 2019 that Amazon announced that it was launching. I think it was like 3,000 plus satellites to deliver broadband services. Yeah. So mm -hmm. I'd be curious yeah. to know whether or not there's any kind of plans for Jeff to kind of focus on building that out, because that will definitely kind of uh, align with what Elon's uh, trying to do. Because Blue Origin is is uh, more about um, suborbital space flight services, if I remember correctly. So slightly different, but um, I wouldn't be surprised if that kind of come under, under his remit as well, um, as, along with all the kind of, you know, foundation and funds that he's kind of working on too. Yeah, and there's a direct sort of competitor with SpaceX and, and SpaceX's mm -hmm. similar satellite uh, internet access project, Starlink. So yeah, there is a there was a head-to-head -head Musk versus Bezos yeah. opportunity for the next five or ten years, I would guess. Yeah, we haven't actually heard anything from Project. Uh, is it Kuba? Kuba? There's the name of the Amazon yeah. project yeah. since 2019. Kuiper, I think it's named. There we Kuiper go. Belt. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but um, it'd be curious actually to see um how they're getting on with those uh 3,000 satellite deployments and maybe an update is in order. Yeah. Uh, yes, it's like SpaceX. I mean, they they both have very uninformative websites about if you're trying to find out what's going on and you're trying to find out somebody to talk to about it um you basically only find out when 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 they put a launch up um on youtube or something it's very very uh, almost a closed community they you, you, we don't have that sort of access that one might expect with a high-tech company do you i wonder why that is I think it's probably just, I don't know, maybe they just get inundated with, <laughs> with yeah. lots of emails and calls from people like us, I suppose, and they, they'll kind of let us know when they've got something. Because I imagine a lot of what they do between now and when it's launched is just a lot of R&D. So, you know, maybe they're just waiting until they've got the actual announcement and it's in the sky and then they'll probably open up the doors again. So we'll see. Indeed. Um, and now we're heading over um, to you next, Alan, and to Ethiopia, where there have been more updates on who and who may not bid for a mobile license. Um, what's been happening? Yeah, it's uh, uh, 
Ethiopia wants to introduce competition into its market. There's a monopoly still, which is uh, Ethio Telecom, which is state owned, although it's looking to sell, I think, 40% of that off over the next few months. And it's appointed advisors, uh, KPMG, on its valuation. But it also wants to bring more companies into the uh, into the business to set up their own mobile operation, mobile and fixed operations. Um, well, this week we heard that Airtel uh, decided it wasn't going to bid. That's the Indian-owned business, but that's got 110 million customers in Africa, uh, so it is a significant uh, challenger. But um, that would uh, surprise. There was also a um, a company that no one's ever heard of. Uh, <laughs> were a Chinese company that decided it wasn't going to uh, uh, invest in the company, in, in Ethiopia, wasn't going to bid. Uh, and meanwhile, though, I've heard it, I'm trying to get information of, from Orange and MTN and uh, Vodafone. Now, Vodafone is sort of starting to trickle out. It looks like there will be a bid from the the Vodafone family. Uh, that's Vodafone and its Kenyan subsidiary Safaricom, and that's just south of the border with, with Ethiopia, uh, which is likely to perhaps do a mobile money service as well. Um, and Vodacom, which is the South African group in which Vodafone is a significant shareholder. So I think Vodafone, Vodacom and Safaricom between them will be bidding. And that looks fairly, fairly authentic. Orange, it's finding hard to dig. There's a lot of NDAs, a lot of people saying, no, we can't comment. Um, whether, and so it's hard to tell whether it's a one company doing it by itself. Um, certainly Orange would have the power to. Um, MTN in South Africa has been mentioned a lot of times, but it hasn't really come forward with very much. Um, so we, 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 we're just keeping watch on it at the moment and see what happens. Uh, the deadline it was going to be, uh, the, the Ethiopians have moved the deadline. It's now, I think, April for the, getting the applications in. It was going to be March, um, but uh, they say uh, that they've had lots of requests. Now, it could be that they've had lots of requests, or it could be that people are just really slow um, to put their applications in. And maybe they're just hoping that the civil strife in Ethiopia is going to settle down. I mean, it's a it's a country with some challenges. I mean, there is a, a sort of civil war going on in Tigray at the northwestern corner. And OK, you could say that's well away from the uh, Addis Ababa and the main centres of population. But nevertheless, it's not something that a public company like Vodafone or Orange would willingly go say to its shareholders, yeah, we think it's all right. There may be lots of deaths going around, but um, so we don't know. Um, but uh, certainly Vodafone has got a lot of backing, half a million dollars apparently from uh, the International Development Finance Corporation, which is a US company, US government institution, uh, which a few weeks ago spent uh, loaned uh, 300 million on Africa data centers. Um, so IDC, IFC, sorry, is a very interesting financier for this project. Probably comes with a requirement that it doesn't buy any equipment from Huawei or ZTE. 
Uh, I can't believe that they would authorise that coming out of American taxpayers' money. The, the UK equivalent, CDC, apparently is also uh, likely to fund Vodafone. So I would say Vodafone's probably in a leading position to get uh, an Ethiopian license. There are two available. Who gets the next one? I have no idea. Um, I'm going to keep on digging. Anybody listening to this who has any information, just give me a call, please. Indeed, hopefully they do call in. Um, and what is the timeline on that at the moment, Alan? Because I know that all these different announcements keep coming out of the country, so it's quite difficult to keep on top of those details. It's running a long way behind schedule. I mean, originally it was going to be 2019, 2020. Um, and now the, the current deadline for applications for getting your entries into the uh, the regulator in Addis Ababa is has just been put back by a month to April. So, and then they haven't given any commitment for how long they will take to sift through those. Now, of course, if they only got two applications and they were both fairly legit, I guess those two would be in. But it's it's probably it's embarrassingly slow. I think is the big challenge uh, that they they have kept slipping on their timetable, as they were as as they already are slipping on their time to timetable to uh, privatise Ethio Telecom or to sell off uh, a minority stake in the company. That's That was again going to be done by about 2019, and it looks like it might happen this year, but who knows? No. Um, the other one that said it's bidding, uh, it's a company I've never heard of. It's called Sharing Mobile. It's a Chinese operator. It's got a stake in an Egyptian operator called GICEL, which also I've never heard of, which is quite surprising. There's very little on the web about it. Uh, but Xinhua, which is the Chinese state news agency, uh, said that it was going to bid. Um, so we will see what happens. Uh, I haven't got any more information from, on them. Um, they're fairly impenetrable. But Airtel Africa CEO, they said on Friday um, that they would not bid for Ethiopia. The, uh, the CEO of Airtel Africa said that they were really focusing on the 14 countries they've already got including Nigeria, as well as Congo, DRC, uh, Tanzania and Kenya. So at this stage, she said, they're not looking at bidding for the Ethiopian license. So, uh, and I say it was going to be 5th of March, the deadline. Uh, it's now uh, just been put back to the first week of April. So, and I wouldn't, ex wouldn't be surprised if it got delayed yet further. Well, we shall see. Watch this space. <laughs> yep. First of April is also April Fools. So I don't know if someone could have some fun with that potentially. Oh, there's um, always lots of things happening, aren't there? <laughs> April yes. Yeah. It's the anniversary of T-Mobile and Sprint merging in the US. So there we are. Good memory there. Yeah. Um, if we go over to the US side now, actually Canada um, mm. specifically, um, and to Mengwanzu, who lost her appeal to have her bail conditions relaxed. Um, what was she asking for? What happened? Well, basically, uh, she was she's been there in under house arrest uh, with limited access to you know offices, shopping centres, whatever in Vancouver in Western Canada since December 2018, which just seems a long time ago. Uh, and of course, in those days there wasn't a pand pandemic. Um, so I was going to say, they, we've all been under house arrest. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. What's so, she complaining about? Yeah. Well, she's been there two years, so um, not one. So, yeah. And, and she has to pay for these uh, security guards mandated by the Vancouver court uh, out of her own pocket or probably out of Huawei's pocket. But that's that's be reasonable. Um, and it's probably not stretching her too much, but they just said they were onerous. Um, it costs her several hundred thousand dollars a month. She has these big security guards 
um, who sat in her car wherever she was being driven anywhere, and she didn't like that. They don't think she's a flight risk because I'm sure Vancouver Airport uh, is is sort of has pictures of her and is not going to let her through. But uh, anyway, but she lost it. But it's now the the next court appearance is on the first of March, which is for the real nuts and bolts of the whole thing. The extradition hearings. The Americans want to extradite her to face charges that she deceived HBS, HSBC, the bank, the UK registered bank, uh, in, implying that there's uh, um, fraud going on because uh, Huawei has business dealings in Iran, which went via a Hong Kong company. And the idea was that she didn't uh, tell HSBC of this relationship. Now, there's all, it's going to be an interesting case, and it's probably going to go on most of the year because uh, apparently there are emails I've been told by somebody in Canada, the emails that show that HSBC were perfectly aware of this. Um, so why could it be fraud? There's also, is this the US trying to impose extraterritorial terms? In other words, so Canadian, she's, she's in Canada, Huawei is Chinese, Iran is in Iran, and HSBC is a UK company. So why, are the, uh, why is the US trying to impose its law uh, on a, an Iran blockade? Um, this is one of the things that's going to be brought up in court over the next few months. Some people say it will be over fairly quickly, uh, but actually uh, I was talking to somebody in Canada who says it's really going to drag on right through till June or July. And then, of course, whichever results there is, there will be an appeal. So it might well go on for another year or two. The only way out of it is probably a deal by the new American administration with Canada, with Canada or with China or with Huawei. I mean, the, the, there are too many options, really, to make it simple to set out what's going to happen. Uh, uh, she could. I've never met her. I don't know what she's like, but she could be stuck in Vancouver, uh, which may well be a nice place. But she could be stuck in Vancouver for the next five <laughs> years, for all I can see. Uh, uh, so it's uh, probably is it's sort of disappearing off the U.S. Um, visibility. They really don't care. I mean, I was surprised when I was writing this earlier in the week, thinking, well, how long has she been in Vancouver? And yes, it is more than two years. It was December 2018. And it's just extraordinary that it's gone on so long. Yeah, she's probably finding herself quite at home there at this point. Well, she um, always, she yeah. had, she'd had the house in Vancouver for some time. Uh, and she mm. is apparently, uh, according to uh, people who know what's going on, is still working as CFO of Huawei, and she's still on their site as their CFO. She's got a financial team with her in her house in Vancouver. So apparently, you know, she is a full-time CFO of Huawei, which is good. Um, and no doubt she gets a decent salary. I mean, she's the daughter of the founder, Ren Jingfei. So uh, I don't suppose she's, uh, you know, scraping a living. Uh, probably just like us in lockdown, she doesn't have anything to spend her money on, except her security cards, of course. <laughs> and Amazon purchases. Well, yes, probably. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much, Alan. Um, and now going over to Natalie, who has a roundup of some of the other big stories from telecoms this week, as well as details of a major exclusive around Parler. Natalie, tell us what's been happening. 
Yeah, thanks, Miles. So, um, you know, uh, starting off um, in the world of subsea, we have a, a new cable that's headed for the seas, and you all know how happy that makes me. Um, that Africa <laughs> one has been confirmed to have begun construction by cable builder ASN. Now, the 10,000 kilometer eight fiber pair system will connect Africa, the Middle East, and Europe. Um, it is actually backed by a consortium comprised of Etisalat, uh, G42, Mobili, Pakistan Telecommunication Company, and Telecom Egypt, with apparently more companies to uh, join in the near future. Now, due to go live in 2023, Africa One will initially land in Kenya, Djibouti, Pakistan, uh, United Arab Emirates, uh, Saudi Arabia, Egypt and France. It will also land in Sudan, uh, cross Egypt through new terrestrial routes uh, to France and will further connect other countries like Algeria, uh, Tunisia and Italy. Now, after this, additional landings will be created in Yemen and Somalia, as well as an extension from Kenya to South Africa with intermediate landings in Tanzania and Mozambique. So quite an extensive sound sounding system, um, but overall a great addition to the world of subsea and connecting three con continents at a time where demand has never been higher is, is great news all around. Now, over in Europe. Earlier this week, Tim published a co-investment offer, essentially um, a call for interested parties and investors to kind of take part, uh, specifically for the rollout of its secondary fibre optic access network. Uh, now, once given the go ahead, the project will allow fibre to the home to be offered to households and businesses in over 1600 municipali ugh, municipalities sorry, across the country by 2025. Now, the co-investment offer is currently under review by the Italian Communications Authority uh, as part of the new European Electronic Communications Code. Interested operators will be able to join the co-investment programme for smaller geographical areas than the entire project, and this includes um, individual areas. Um, in line with the new European code, the co-investment participation model is based on the sharing of long-term risk of building new fibre to the home networks. So a great example of the new code at work and an example of, a, of the first nationwide project of this kind in Europe. So well done to Tim. Now on the other side of the pond, our friends over at AT&T have announced that it has entered into a 14.7 billion term lo loan credit agreement with Bank of America. Now, according to the filing with the US Securities and Exchange Commission, uh, the funds will be available to AT&T to withdraw at any point before the 29th of May 2021. And the company will be able to use the funds to buy additional spectrum, among other things. Now, hardly the biggest shock of the week, given the reports at the start of the year that AT&T was in early stage talks with banks to raise approximately 14 billion to acquire more spectrum. Uh, the need for more funds come as the first of the FCC's 5G auction uh, surpassed its es estimated 47 billion goal and topped 80.9 billion. So AT&T is effectively ensuring it has the necessary funds to compete and secure um, securing its funds um, ahead of time um, and really just a sound business move from AT&T. Now, as you mentioned, an, an, uh, an exclusive uh, for us at Capacity, um, and it comes from the much talked about decision from AWS and other tech companies to ban uh, right wing social network parlor from using its services. Now, for those who 
weren't aware, but I'm sure you were. January 8th, Saw Parlor dropped um, by these companies after it came to light that its platform was used to help coordinate the insurrection at the US Capitol on the 6th of January. Now, since then, Parler has been struggling to regain its service and last month came back online as a static web page only, rumoured to now be working with DDoSGuard, a Russian company offering cybersecurity services and web hosting. Now, as a result, uh, further rumours have been flying that the company has plans to reroute its customers' data through Russian servers, with uh, a Bloomberg article actually stating, Parler's data flows through a DDoS guard server registered to an address in Belize, which cybersecurity experts believe is a tool to protect the true identity and location of Parler's web host. So big claims there. Now, Capacity actually spoke to digital security expert David Jan Jansen, who said um, the security implications of this uh, are potentially massive, because the Russian government, like the Chinese, essentially has carte blanche to do what it wants with any and all data stored in the country. Now, this in turn has sparked a much wider question on the rules of US data sovereignty, uh, an area that I think for the average person is shrouded in some mystery, and one which we take on, we take to full task actually in a feature in the February March issue of Capacity Magazine. So be sure to check out the issue for more details on this story. Now, last but not least, uh, I'm sure the world now knows of the military coup in Myanmar that saw the arrest of democratic leader um, Aung San Suu Kyi, uh, along with other political leaders. The arrests were made in response to alleged election fraud, and as a result, a state, um, state of emergency has come into force for the next year. Now, at the point of the uprising, the country's phone and internet connectivity actually began to drop, with some claiming it, it, that was done to prevent coverage of, of what was happening. Now, thankfully, that coverage has, was quickly restored, and actually HGC Global Communications confirmed earlier this week that it managed to restore, restore services in a mere five hours, and it's after its service went down. It also confirmed that the outage affected the services of all domestic telecom operators and impacted both domestic and international services. But HGC wasn't the only one. Uh, Telenor's network in Myanmar is, um, is back up and running, um, and was back up and running, I should say, a day later. And it was actually confirmed by uh, Sinye Brecky, the CEO of Telenor, during a presentation call. But um, hardly a, a new move, um, you know, something that um, I think happens quite a lot whenever there is a civil unrest in many places. Um, can you guys think of any other more notable blackouts of, as of late? I mean, one that springs to mind is the uh, protest last year in Nigeria and um, people not having the coverage to be able to kind of report on what was going on there. That's quite interesting. But um, in Nigeria, um, how they did it was they were blocking off their social media and, you know, making it hard for them to contact each other um, via WhatsApp and things like that after um, what happened in um, with the military in Lekki. But also recently, I think it was, it was Uganda, isn't it, that um, also had their internet completely shut off. I think it was like maybe three weeks ago. Yeah. Um, and that was because of, you know, the elections and... And I thought that was quite interesting how, you know, whenever whenever things don't go right, they're like, oh, let's just collect some internet. Let's just give them no access so that they can't talk to each other. It's, yeah, it's really bizarre. And it's always the losing side, isn't it? They, yeah. they get they, Somebody else wins the election. And so the, the, the side that's about to be ousted or does less well than was expected shuts down the internet. Uh, yeah, it's Myanmar it's is almost not... like what happened in Washington, D.C., except they didn't cut off the internet. Fortunately, it kept on going. 
Yeah. They did cut it off in the UK in April 2019, though. So there's no figures that I was able to find for 2020 as yet. But Access Now, which is a digital rights um, kind of organisation, confirmed that 2019 was a really bad year for internet freedom. Um, services were deliberately shut down more than 200 times in 33 separate countries, mm. um, including the UK, as I mentioned. Um, if you remember, the British Transport Police shut down Wi-Fi on the tube in London during Extinction Rebellion protests, um, which is obviously a much smaller scale than what we saw in India, for example, last weekend, where they cut off mobile internet, particularly um, during the farmers' protests. Um, but India is absolutely no stranger to blackouts at all. In 2019, it had 93 shutdowns over the course of one year. So this isn't just a kind of like women, it isn't just a political thing, like forces in different countries, sorry, forces is probably the wrong word, but <laughs> entities in different countries are very much, um, you know, trying to take control of communications. Um, and we have kind of touched on this as a group in offline discussions, um, you know, who controls that switch? Who, who do they go to to get the internet turned off and who's colluding with them to allow these things to happen? It's it, quite it's an part of telcos licenses, I think, uh, Melanie. It's, if you get a telecoms license, you have to have a facility to filter your traffic and to close down in an emergency. I mean, back on, when was it? When was 7-7, uh, the terrorist bombings in London? It must have been about 2007 or six, it was the day before the IOC announced London had got the 2012 Olympics. So it was a long time ago, but there was huge outage in central London all that morning. And it may well just have been excess of traffic, but the general assumption was that it was, that uh, the mobile networks had just been closed down uh, or being prioritized for the emergency services. And certainly that's been part of what telcos, certainly in the UK have had to do as long as anyone can remember that there were right back to the 1950s. Uh, I'm not that old to remember that sort of thing, but certainly I remember in the early 70s, um, a friend who worked at a telephone exchange had noticed that different cables went through different boxes. Uh, and so if you were a local doctor or something like that, you had absolute priority. At least your phone kept on working and people could phone you and you could phone other people. If you were part of the police and security services, your phone would work 100% of the time. If you were one of the 90% of the public, if there was any big outage, like a, you know, a war approaching a nuclear bombing or something like that, your phone would just get cut off. And, and that's been part of how telecoms companies have worked for forever, probably. Uh, and I would guess that certainly back when they were fixed, it was a lot easier because you just had a big switch and you pull the switch. But <laughs> uh, with mobile networks, it's probably all software controllable, so you can close it down. Um, I mean, the other thing that nobody talks about in the telecoms industry is is uh, interception, license interception, that uh, the local uh, law enforcement agencies have the right to listen into calls with the appropriate rules according to what country what country you're in, um, and that's always has to be part of the rules. One of the reasons why some are so suspicious about satellite phone services because. You know, if they don't go through the territory, then they there's no way of cutting them off. Yeah, and it, to, to me, it just really points out how powerful, you know, the telecom sector is, because I can't imagine, you know, if one party, for example, like Uganda, who the losing party decided to cut off the, the you know, internet service, 
if there was any other sector, I can't imagine them saying, oh, let's cut off the lights or cut off the, like what other sector would make such an impact mm -hmm. other than the telecom sector? Um, and it's probably easy. Well, it's easy with the telecom sector because it all will go through a limited number of companies where, you know, people have got diesel generators or candles. And the ultimate. Yes. Uh, they can keep their lights on and they've probably got a can of petrol or diesel lurking around so they can keep their car going or their generator going or something. But yeah, these are all centrally controlled and they're, they're fragile. We trust yeah. governments to not to turn them off and we trust the operators not to turn the services off, but they do sometimes. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of trust in the relationship um, and kind of um, gravity of a situation when they do flick that switch or, you know, contact yeah. those people and turn off services is kind of where the question mark very much remains. Um, it's like in journalism, the public interest defence, it's like, you know, is this yeah. in public safety yeah. to turn off communications? Will it prevent bloodshed and dissent and et cetera, et cetera? Um, yeah, the very classic, interesting topic. The classic case, of course, is, is China with the Great Firewall of China. And, you know, have, as somebody who's used the Internet in China, on many occasions, you know, it's amazing what you can't get. <laughs> um, Google, just, you know, if you're sitting there in Shanghai, you just can't get Google. You think, I want to look at Google, and you, you can't. You've got to use a local service. Uh, you can't find a lot of information from Western media. Uh, and if you try to use legitimate, I mean, authorised services, like to upload stories to our website for capacity and whatever, um, it's just slow. There are impediments put in their way so that we, we can't do it easily. Um, um, and there used to be, it used to be a great breath of fresh air as you crossed over to Hong Kong and thought, ah, now you've got an internet that's working. And sadly, over the last year, that's less the case than it used to be. Um, very difficult times in quite a few places right now but on that note we will um come to an end of this week's episode hopefully there will be better news to share next week um but thank you to everybody for your stories and reporting this week and thanks also to everybody who listened we will return next week with more stories from the global tech and telecom space but until then you can catch up with all the latest from across the industries over at capacitymedia.com there you can sign up to the daily telecoms news alerts from capacity and also the weekly news alerts from data economy also online you can find the latest issue of the magazine and details of our events calendar for 2021 we have metro connect usa coming up in a few weeks and another virtual edition of capacity middle east which returns at the end of march for now that's all for me and the team have a great weekend take care and catch you next time